I love failure. I fail every day. I don't care about it. Just get on with it. Now, prayer to now you've got it too. You are absolutely an entrepreneur at heart. As all the fish are going in one way, you suddenly look around and you think, damn it, I'm going to go the other way. When you look back at Pratt, at a business you ended up selling for two billion. I had no idea what I was doing. It wasn't planned. Endless moments of magic, moments of bizarre creativity and confidence. What was motivating you? I wanted to make a difference. I suddenly found myself with this responsibility to open a restaurant. From that start, we built 76 of them. We started developing it so it could become the future. The absence of both parents. He was quite distant, my father. My mother committed suicide when I was seven. That created a loneliness. To create something new, you've got to put yourself in slightly uncharted territory. Business isn't just business to you, is it? It's not just about the money. No, and it shouldn't be to anyone. I'm far more interested in the relationships with the customer and the staff and the product. I was obsessed by that. Obsessed! It's incredible what people can do. People don't trust them. People don't nurture them because they're too busy being selfish, nurturing themselves. What's the worst crisis you've ever had in your business? I don't even want to go into it. I want to hear it. So without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett, and this is The Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. Julian. Yeah. I was exposed to a number of hardships as a child. You said that. What did you mean? I love the way you start off with a real killer. Um, I can't remember who I said that to. Um, and I was expecting... Well, listen, I'm, not, I'm not alone, by the way. A, a great many people watching this or listening to this were exposed to hardships far greater than mine. But the death of my mother when I was seven, she, my mother committed suicide on Boxing Day. Uh, so I was left... and My parents were divorced. So we, we lived, uh, the three of us, my brother, sister, and I lived with our mum. But that was a difficult thing. That, was a, 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 that created a loneliness. Did you, did you realise that at the time? Did you realise the impact that incident ha- had had on you growing up? Probably not. No, I think I, that you don't, when you're lonely, you don't really, age eight or nine or 12, you don't really know you're lonely. You just, you don't feel whole, I suppose. You don't feel completely whole. Other people seem to be jollier than I was at that age. That's for sure. As an adult, did you ever look back and try and understand the significance of that particular event and how it might have shaped you? I think the event, I I don't know if it's shaped me, but it's definitely added um, a complexity to my character, which has made me which has helped shape my, my, my relationship with people, my relationship with work, my relationship with everything, yeah. There's no doubt it would be s- silly to pretend that it didn't. Reminds me of something that um, I talk about this guy a lot. This guy said to me, he came on this podcast, he was Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant's trainer. And he talked about how f- some of the things that happen to us early that are traumatic end up being the cause of our, what he called light side which is the talent, our brilliance, the thing we become known for. But yeah. they're also the contributor to our dark side, which can be our complexity, our insecurities, all of those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Um, do you think that event so early on, or any event early on in your life, that particular event, let's focus on that particular event, had a contributing factor to what people would consider to be your brilliance, this incredible career you've had? I th- I th- listen, I think, I think people, people, work, people become obsessive, 
and they become successful and they work extremely hard for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, they want to become relevant. They want to be, they want maybe to be careful or seek admiration they didn't get or they have parents who didn't acknowledge them. I, I really, I don't know. All I know is it must have probably, ha of course it had some effect on the way I've, I work and the view of my life and have lived my life. Yeah. But I, but I think um, over time, over over many years, it's it's it, it's waned um, as I've as I've kind of developed as a person. I, I also I'm I'm, I'm nervous about even suggesting that you know to be fulfilled and to make change and to really contribute to society, you have to come from a dark place because I don't think you do. Um, certainly not as as dark as, as as something like that. I, you know, I, I think about when I meet a lot of obsessive people, yeah. tends to be the case that something quite uh, extreme had poked them yeah. in their life at some point to make them, <laughs> give them that chip on their shoulder, yeah. whether it's Michael Jordan or Kobe or whether it's Eddie Hearn yeah. and that feeling of living in his father's shadow and the insecurity of that. And of these other, you know, the sons of billionaires that I meet who've built big fashion empires, yeah. they're very, um, they're very dominant fathers have, have made them obsessive, obsessive by convincing them vicariously that they're not good enough for example mm. and so that's why i always i always tend to go in search of understanding what where yeah. that obsessiveness comes no, you're from. right too and there's there's bound to be a correlation as you know from all the all all so many of the people you've interviewed and, and you're clearly very empathetic that you will find a a train a, a common denominator there but it's not it's it's not everything it's certainly not for for a great many people listening or watching who who have not faced tragedy yeah. or sadness like that um they need to know that it's it's not an essential part of being able to get on and and do do good do extraordinary work what about your father my father was uh he was quite distant my father um he was kind of old-fashioned my parents were very very different my mother was a ukrainian immigrant uh and 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 kind of wild and wonderful. And my father was really kind of arist posh, aristocratic Englishman, rather distant and cold. He then made a mistake of marrying um, someone for a very short period of time when I was about 10, 11. That, that ended very, that did not end well for any of us, uh, the three children. Um, so it was not a great time between seven and, and 16. It was a messy, a messy uh, childhood, I think, did filled you have with problems. Did you ever go in search of answers as to why your mother made that decision? Uh, no, I, I, I didn't. I didn't because not not that many people knew my mother. Actually, we we lived alone with her. Um, I. She was just. She was just had serious mental issues. That she was just ill and and sad and and it's awful you know terrible terrible it's common i mean listen it's common this happens all the time um this this happens too much um too much too common that that distance from um the absence of both parents that's, that's kind of what I've, I've ascertained from what you said so far. There was an absence of, of both parents to some degree. What, I, I, I resonate with that for my own reasons. Yeah. I, um, my mum was, was working 
so hard that she decided to end up sleeping in the shop. So I was, I'm the youngest of four as well. And typically what you find, I think, is the youngest one gets treated like the older ones yeah. at a certain point, especially if it's a boy. And so by the age of 10, neither of my parents are there when I wake up and neither of them are there when I go to sleep. On yeah. one hand, that gives me great independence. Yeah. It means that I stop going to school yeah. because no one's going to punish me if I don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that is maybe, in my case, what led me to becoming, in my view, an entrepreneur. There was a void of... Um, responsibility or sort of accountability which led to independence so i started selling things and doing what i liked that made me very bad at following rules later yeah. in life which i think is i'm going back and connecting the dots in hindsight but i think that led me to be on no, I'm, I'm sure that's true that would make complete sense um so both of us have that in common but then you know so 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 do a great many others um in addition to my, my i had a real problem with authority i went to really old-fashioned schools I was sent away to, to schools age seven. And in both cases, the schools were really, really old-fashioned and, and, in my opinion, terribly badly run with all kinds of bad things going on. It was just shocking. So I had a really bad relationship with authority. I felt it completely let me down on every level. Um, I still do, actually. So maybe that's why I branched out on my own early to try and... I just, you know, we're, we're, so many of us are let down by people in power and authority, I find. I, you know, it's sad, it's irritating. It really is irritating, actually. It doesn't matter if it's people who run companies or people in politics or people who run schools. It's just, particularly schools, I think um, people who are in charge of young ch children need to nurture them and look after them and, and help them build their confidence and strength, not put them through a meat grinder. That's what happened in your school? The uh, the first uh, private school I went to was just just shocking. Yeah, really, really. I'm, I didn't even want to go into it because it would just up, upset your view. Your view. I, I want to hear it. No, no, no. I'm not going to go there. I refused to go there, but it was just not a good mm. experience, not a good place. And so that that's where I think I learned very, very early on to seriously distrust authority and deeply. And, and perhaps then realize, okay, you've got to forge your own path and work with people who you trust and people who are worthy of your your love and people who give back uh, rather than people who you know climb that ladder into positions of authority but a great many of us suffer from this a great many of us are working our asses off for people who don't really support us or appreciate us or want to develop our characters or skills or anything Sel uh, commerce is selfish the people who do well in commerce I mean, if you look at your success 90 percent of it is because of your your understanding of the way human beings work it's about giving and taking and giving and thinking long term that's what really builds success i think i really do i mean one advantage uh, i had my father used to spend a lot of time uh, entertaining very, very kind of powerful people, particularly from America. And, and, and I realized they were, in the end, mostly just pretty average human beings, but who had achieved a lot. And I started seeing them with all their faults and warts and realizing, wow, to make a difference, it's, it's not impossible. But you need the right structure. And I think so many of us work in a structure which is simply not possible whether it be politics or fear or our own insecurities or, or whatever it is. There's just not enough transparency in this world. 
you know, a great many of, of us are working with no transparency at all in, in our place of work. Don't you think? I get the feeling you, th you, you thrive off transparency. You like it. You face things head on and you like people around you to face things head on. That's, that's the way to build. It's the only way. Yeah, I've been on the journey. I think I think when I was a bit more insecure, I think transparency felt like a risk. And then as I've developed my, in myself and yeah. also in my businesses, transparency felt like a great motivator. Great yeah. um, and I actually said to my team, some of which are in the room now, at the start of this month, that every quarter, I'm going to show you all the financials of the entire business. Yeah. So you can see everything. And also you're going to see that I've never taken a pound out of this business ever because I want them to understand because that, that's an example of, for me, transparency in a business context, being a real big, yeah. big motivator. Then one of the younger girls on the team, when I was in the car one day, said, turned to me and said, by the way, you doing that completely changed my perception. Yeah. Because I think, yeah. I think they thought that like I was making this money from doing this podcast or whatever it is, or yeah. any of my business, and then taking the money into my pocket from as it comes in. So to show them that I've yeah. never taken a penny ever, I it, it kind of, I think... Aligns us. In no, no. Some listen, way. it's transparency and people being open and honest and building trust is by far the most important characteristic ever. For the day I started my work, for the last forty years, it's, I've now realised it's what you should value and crave more than anything. It's worth everything. Transparency is everything. And so many people work in an environment where it's simply not there. They're just not used to it. They can't expect it. They can't demand it, and they're not going to get it. And that's bad. Move job. Change. Don't, 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 you shouldn't work for people who aren't transparent. And that's, transparency is a wonderful thing. Can you it gets honesty, a truth. Truth is wonderful. Can you define your definition of what you mean when you're saying transparency? Well, well I mean, to keep it really simple, let's, let's, let's stick to the world of commerce. And the world of commerce is, and, and probably politics, but I don't know, I have no understanding of politics and I've no inkling ever to be a politician, but... In the world of commerce, there's not nearly as much transparency as there, there should be. So sharing information, sharing truth, saying what you feel, um, being honest with your, your, your colleagues, your teammates, as well as the people who work with you and for you. It's just, you can't take that, that stuff for granted because it doesn't happen in most places. You, I don't know, you need a collective, um, you need, you need, uh, you need to, to um, I, I don't know why. You tell me why. Why do you think 90% of businesses are not nearly as transparent as they should be and could be? We know what they are. So it's all about people protecting their own fears. It's about their own insecurities, about protecting their own pay, their bonuses. There are a thousand reasons why there's not the transparency we deserve as human beings. Because to achieve the truth, so say like I'm, just for as an example, say I run an organic um, vegetable store. Yeah. I can, on one hand, go to the extra effort of actually being organic, which means it costs me more. I have to do a bunch of stuff in the supply chain, whatever. Or I can say I am and, and, get, the, to be, and yeah. get the same return. Exactly. Two decades ago, it would be very hard for you to find out I was lying because the world wasn't connected with the internet. There was no glass doors, social media, tweeting, instantaneous communication. So I think the world of business grew in a black box approach where you're... you're PR, your marketing, your messaging was painted out on the outside of your business by the marketing director. We're now in a glass box world yeah. where everybody can see inside and they can yeah. talk with someone in Australia in a, in yeah, a yeah, second. Yeah. So I think that there's been this, I think transparent businesses in the last 10 years 
in the connected world have really won yeah. um, for that reason. Okay, no, there's no doubt. It's much harder to lie with regard to your consumers. These That's days. no question. Yeah. But I'm more interested in, in the lies, the deceit, and, and, the, and, the, and the lack of transparency and the darkness with the relationships people have with their employees and their employer, where a great deal of stuff is never said. Like what? Well, I mean, how many people, do you know, what is the percentage of people who wake up on a Monday morning want to go to work? I mean, it's frighteningly small. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I mean, if 80% if, if of the people who you work with, you find out they didn't want to come to work, wouldn't you find that devastating? Wouldn't, surely, wouldn't you look in the mirror and say, what on earth am I doing wrong? I think if that was the case, I also wouldn't want to come to that place. Well, of course you wouldn't. But the thing is, now you've got to ask yourself, well, why does that apply to 70% of all working people? And what are they meant to do? How do we, sitting here around this round table, what are we, how can we help them? How, how can we help nurture a, a thing where people have got the courage to be transparent and say what they feel? What do you think the answer is? I don't know. But, but we're living in a, a times where it's beginning to happen. I mean, listen, just look at the Me Too movement. Who would have thought a few years ago that could have generated the speed and power it did? It's an incredibly good thing. I mean, you know, that went from I dare not say anything to the whole world saying everything in just one year, two years. It's fantastic. I There's think, a small example of absolutely zero transparency. It's sick. Power corrupts. This awful thing to say. But we know this is true. We know it's true. As, as you're a boss, you're, you, know, you have a position of huge responsibility. You know. I know. We all know that. What yes. about affection? One affection. Of the, one of the things Love. that... One of the things that was definitely absent from my childhood was affection. Yeah. I didn't even call my parents mum and dad. I still don't to right. this day. Um, their absence, I think, was one part of that. But also just, I didn't have affection. So growing up, the thought of calling someone a friend, yeah. a best friend, still to this day makes me cringe. It's just a little bit... Yeah. In your case, God, are yeah, you an affectionate person? I, I've never been asked that question. I have absolutely no idea how to answer it um because do i compare myself to other people um i have no idea you don't know if you're affectionate or not i think i'm affectionate um, in your own way but i also know for years i struggled with my like like so many with self-esteem and you know um and i i i'm sure i felt completely unlovable for for decades probably I, i'm sure um but then, you know, I, I, I've had, in my opinion, uh, I've been blessed with amazing relationships with friends and, and, and family. I mean, just completely blessed. And, and, and I'm not a baby, so I'm, six, you know, I'm 62 years old. And so this, you know, I've, two of my children work with me. Uh, I mean, what more could you possibly dream of than that? So... I must have some relationship with the concept of affection. What, how, where it came from and how I grew it, I, I, I'm not entirely sure because I certainly didn't get it from my mother and father. I must have got it from, from, from close friends and, and maybe just looking and learning that there's no point trying to go through life without it. What you, what you give, you get back, you know. Pret-a-Manger started, you know, as a, like it became a kind of incredible family. I mean, the warmth and love and care which went into the building of relationships in that company was breathtaking. It was like a family. It started with one store and ended up with hundreds, but there was a time when it was truly extraordinary extended family.
and that's I think where I grew to understand the power of of of, of deep affection and love and trust. Yeah, definitely came for me much later than for most people. Yeah. You said there was. You think there was probably decades where you didn't love yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean, decades as in in my teens and then in my twenties. Um, you, you, I don't know how good you are at at, at reflecting and self discovery. I'm I'm kind of a five out of ten probably. I, I mean, I I pushed myself therapy and and even doing this. I think called the Hoffman. Have you heard about he's Hoffman? He's coming here. Yeah, I did the Hoffman. He's kind of great. He's, yeah. he's, what a genius that guy was. But so I try. What was your question? Or how long? The decades of self-loathing? I don't know. No, not how know. long. Just what were the symptoms of, of that? So no, you've just, yeah. just, just probably um, just that ongoing feeling of being completely unworthy. That's what you get when you don't have parents so much or, or loving. You're not nurtured, you know. So you feel lonely. You grew up with that, so, yeah. that feeling of um, unworthiness. And I always believe, I actually wrote it, I think in my book or my notepad or something, that the things that made us feel invalid when we're younger end up being the things we seek validation from when we're older. Yeah, that's complete common sense and true. What but, sort but of did you, you feel unloved? It was, I knew my parents loved me that we just didn't have, I just didn't learn what affection was. So like, think about it. I don't even call them dad and mum today. I didn't learn what it was. I also, because their relationship was incredibly dis, like loud. And so I've said this a million times before. It's in my book. My mum would scream at my dad for seven hours a day. My mum is African. She can really hit some notes. And my dad would sit there. He's a, he's a guy from Coventry. You know, he was a middle-aged white man and he would just be totally silent. And that was my model of relationships. If you're with a woman, you are in prison. So I, I didn't get into a relationship till I was 27. Yeah, yeah. So I learned all of those models. And then, you know, I would, chase, I would chase women when I was young. I would chase women when I was 14. I would chase women when I was 21. The minute they turned to me and said yes, then I would dissuade them. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd immediately talk them out of it. But why? Do you think that's because once you had them, you felt that you didn't deserve their affection or was it just the competition of getting them to prove that you were worthy of them? Because what was it? I would pursue them because of the reasons why we pursue anyone, because they're beautiful and I have mm. those hormones and those, that desire. And I, you know, I have that. Okay. The minute we got to commitment, yeah. we're going to be boyfriend and girlfriend. So you were frightened of the commitment? I was, I would Im immediately felt like my dad trapped in a cage okay so i would dissuade them from it so it was literally i it took me till i was 25 to figure out what was going on why i was running away from women that i was chasing um the minute we got to commitment boyfriend and girlfriend if it, it made me my skin crawl and it made me feel like i was trapped yeah. so i dissuade them so in your case you, well, that, that could have just been because of what you had witnessed 100 percent. so over over years you just witnessed this dysfunctional relationship where in a way your father was trapped so it kind of so mine was different to that because I never saw my parents together, ever. I don't think I barely ever saw them in a room together. That's not quite true. My father used to come down occasionally on Sunday, but I never saw them arguing. Um, so I, my, my, my take on what love was and should be was, was I must have been at the, my own invention. I, I don't know. But I've come to, um, it's a fascinating subject, don't you think? When you study people who are in uh, supportive, wonderful relationships, I find it enthralling. I mean, fascinating. Fascinating. It's uh, the most fascinating um, thing to study. How people uh, 
adapt their life to be completely in love with someone and 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 live their life uh just showing warmth and kindness and forgiveness and love it's very enriching if you can do it it's definitely something to um it's a goal it's a great goal i mean i it's a goal there are other goals but it, that's got to be the greatest i guess i think we admire in others the things we don't have in ourselves right so people would look at you and go, how the hell? The greatest goal is to build prep. And I would look at someone else and say what you've just said. I'd say the greatest goal is to, how the fuck did you stay mm. together for 50 years when I'm struggling to stay together for two or one? Yeah, yeah. I guess that's what makes life fascinating in the sense that some people can achieve the goals that, that you and I think are really very, very difficult. But it doesn't stop us, stop us struggling to get there. What was the consequence then of you, you growing up, being in your early 20s and not feeling like you were, quote unquote, sort of enough was that what did you see any well on the dark side i guess it, it made me focus more and and uh and made me more determined i guess more determined uh just it's it it where most people uh packed off and went home i would i would i'd be prepared to stick it out um but you can't i had an interesting conversation with someone the other day about the use of this expression hard work he said it's not hard work it's not it's it's a great many people work very very hard and they don't um succeed it's it's not that it's about it's about the evidence it's about can you make change are you getting better is your product better is your service better is your relationship with the people you work with is it better you know it's about proof it's about real facts it's not just hard work. Hard work, we just use that expression. I work really hard. I know a lot of people who work really, really hard, but they don't work in the focused way that you and I work. Mm. So it's it, it's worth kind of thinking, well, what is the difference between them and us? What is it? And if we have to guide anyone, if, that, if they seek, if they already are in a, a rich, wonderful relationship and they want to run a company, their own company, they want to be self-employed, how can we guide them? What is it that we have that they don't? Um, and would we swap their wonderful, rich, incredible relationship to, to have another 500 employees? I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I think you can have both. Oh, that's what I, I, I um, that's my goal. You know, I, 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 I'm determined to have both, determined to have both. Don't have to have one without the other. It's not true. I mean, it's hard to have both, but come on, it's it's got to be worth aiming for, isn't it? Do you have both now? Yeah. Not not in full because my career is only half there and I'm oh, I'm oh I'm not running out of steam but it's so annoying I'm running out of time. Um and my relationship with my you know I have seven kids. I've got four stepkids, three of mine. I've got a oh, oh, how long have we been together? 15 years, Brooke and I. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm bloody lucky. I'm really fortunate. I think I, I think I picked really well. Um, you know, I'm bloody lucky with that. But I mean, I could blow it, I guess. But I'm, I'm going to do my damnedest not to. When you look back at um, starting prep, we're talking about what's driving you there. Was there any epiphanies around what was really driving you on that day when someone first came along and said they were going to buy your company? Because for me, I thought I was being driven by money until right. someone offered me it. And then I thought, oh, God, there must be something else motivating me here. I don't know about that myself. It's, it's, I've, I've, often, I've often wondered, did money 
and the pursuit of money ever drive me? I don't think so. Because I think I, I saw enough people when I was young with a lot of money who were absolutely miserable and dysfunctional and miserable. Actually, my mother had a lot of money and lo obviously lost it all and died. So there, I had a very good example of, of someone with a huge amount of money who had nothing. Well, I didn't, we so, didn't inherit yeah. any of her money, but she was, um, it was a good example of someone who was miserable with money. Money doesn't, it's awful. Uh, you know, when people like you and I say, oh, money doesn't make you happy, it's nothing more irritating than a statement uh, like that, when a great many people uh, don't have a large cash reserves in their bank account. But the fact is, uh, we both know that, that it doesn't. What was motivating you? Well, I think I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to be relevant. I wanted to be... Love. admired uh, yeah i wanted to do something interesting and great i wanted to people i wanted people to look at me and think wow he's this this guy's serious he's he's onto something he matters then i wanted to to, to create these important relationships with people i worked with i wanted to see people flourish around me that really mattered to me i wanted to try and wipe away all the, some of that pain i wanted that and then deep down i really love and passionately creative, the creative process of what I did. So the design and the food and the taste and the look and the feel and, and breaking down every barrier, which I just, as far as I was, I only kind of saw opportunity. It's, you have to be very resourceful and determined in, in, in my particular business, you know, because it's, as we, as we were saying before, and it's basic. If you want to sell the best cake in the world at the best price, you've got to be damn resourceful. You've got to work with geniuses. You've got to have the best equipment, the best everything. And, and that doesn't happen overnight. You don't get that by picking up the phone and ordering something. You have to create it. And it's, you have to be unbelievably resourceful. But I, that, I, that, with regard to the food, the design, and my belief in, in what food should be and could be for people um, knows no bounds, no end, no end. I'll stop at nothing. Love it. Those dinner parties your father threw. Oh, yeah, yeah. Did they have any lasting impression or lasting impact? Well, on no, your most career? of the time I was in the kitchen, actually. Oh, so I'd meet these, these, remark these many remarkable people. But my love of food started because I used to spend all the time in the kitchen. And there was a, a guy who used to come and cook. He was really talented, Tony. And I'd spend the night with him, watching him work from the age of about 14, 13. It was fascinating. And that's really where my love of food started with him, watching him work. So it was a combination of, of, of becoming obsessed with what food could be and should be. Um, and at the same time, not being frightened of, of all these rather dysfunctional but immensely successful people who I met through my father. I didn't really get to know them very well, but a few. At, at the time, it's hard to determine when you're building a business and it's going well, it's hard to determine at the time what's actually making it brilliant and the specialness, as you've called yeah. it before. In mm. hindsight, I think it's much easier to look back and go, that's why we were special and different. That's why we won. When you look back at Pret, a business you ended up selling for two billion or something crazy, a huge number. Yeah. Okay, it doesn't matter, it's a huge number. Um, what was the specialness? What, what did you oh my God. There was unintentionally so or intentionally do right? What, what was the... Well, so much of it, it wasn't planned. It happened endless moments of magic endless moments of 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 moments of bizarre creativity and confidence 
exactly the same with, with your business. It just, it's so difficult. It was, you didn't write it all down and plan it. It just, it happened with moments of confidence, endless, endless moments, you know, of swimming upstream. As all the fish are going in one way, you suddenly look around, you think, damn it, I'm going to go the other way. I'm not going to swim in this direction. This can't be right. Uh, and that takes guts. It takes bravery. It takes relationships with people. It takes hiring talent. You have to have the guts to hire talent. People's often much better than you. You've got to be prepared to listen and listen until it hurts. You've got to be prepared to fail over and over and over again. I love failure. I love it because it's just a damn journey. I really love it. I fail every day and I don't care about it. I just get on with it. It's wonderful. Um, but with prep, prep, food is a magical thing to be able to do. It's like music or film. I mean, it's 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 because when we know it's good, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And in those days, in 1986, when we started, it was in the doldrums. It was all so boring and awful. Um, so it was just a question of, but but prep wasn't just built with food. It was built with a combination. It was kind of built with a uh, magical, magic approach to the, the, the respect and love and obsession about creating pride and trust with the, with the, with the team, with the employees. I, I was obsessed by that, obsessed by that, actually. How, how important was it for you that you were naive? Because I think naive... Bloody, oh, it was very important. I had no idea what I was doing. None. Why was that? Important? I have no idea what I'm doing most of the time, actually, because I spend my life casting myself out into Never Neverland. I don't know what I'm doing half the time. But you learn, you listen, you talk, you speak to the right people, and you learn. Because to create something new, how, you know, you've got to you've got to put yourself in slightly uncharted territory, you know, and then you've got to be prepared to fail many, many times and keep going. That's all. Prep was just a series of hundreds of failures. That's all it was, moments of failure and then moments of glory, moments of wonderful moments of bravery. Yeah, that was it. Like, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's moments, endless moments where a light goes on. You think, OK, I'm going to take that risk. I'm going to do it. It feels right. Something in your heart says it's go for it. Could be, could be working with people, promoting people or giving them extraordinary opportunity or or developing something which no one's ever eaten before, or I don't know, hundreds of different things. Or when systems don't work, and you're not getting, you're not getting the behaviours or the warmth or the trust you crave, then you have to think outside the box. You've got to think again. We used to, there was one store after about 10, the 10th press, I think, I, I couldn't understand why the atmosphere in this store was so bad. Fleet Street. Oh, it was Fleet Street, yeah. Bloody hell. And it was the first time I had paid a recruitment company for a top manager, suit and tie, the whole thing. And yeah, it's true. I met this girl who I recognized who worked in the store, a young scruffy girl on the tube on the way home. She burst into tears. And she said, I'm leaving on Monday um, because her manager was a dick. And I didn't need her to explain what dick meant. I knew exactly what she meant. My God, I'd been at school. I'd been, all the teachers were dicks. I knew exactly what she meant. And I hated, I hated the idea of this, this determined, brave, trustworthy, wonderful, loving, fabulous young lady being bullied by Dick. So we, we fired the Dick and we promoted her to a manager. And I never looked back. I think I learned more from that young lady than any, anyone I've ever learned in my life, actually. 
the hope and the joy. Did you see yourself in her? Oh my God, I've never thought about that. Oh my God, maybe. But no one ever gave me that opportunity. I had to fight for it. I didn't give her that opportunity. She earned it, actually. She earned it just by being herself. She was a great manager too, actually. I don't know how I knew. I I didn't know she was going to be a great manager. There was something about her. There was something about her. And by the way, there's something about a great, great many people I meet. They all have so much going for them. They just don't believe it. They're just not working in an environment where they're giving the opportunity they deserve. People don't trust them. People don't nurture them because they're too busy being selfish, nurturing them themselves. Sounds like you're talking about your school teachers. Oh, well, they're just, they were idiots. They were just complete idiots. And they're just downright, no one should be, they shouldn't have been paid. (laughs) But there are a lot of authorities like that. I mean, a lot. And that store's sales doubled or something? Oh, my God, yeah, double, triple, yeah, of course. Why? Because there there was trust, there was care, there was pride, there was love and forgiveness. There was goals. There was, there was everything wonderful in life right there, right there. Business isn't just business to you, is it? It's not just about the money. No, and it shouldn't be to anyone. But it is because we work short-term goals. So many of us are controlled, we're bossed around. We have to, we're, 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 you know, people's emotions are incredibly inconvenient in commerce, aren't they? Let's face it. And, and some people like you and other people have found ways of being, you know, found ways of, of, of bypassing all that shit. And you let people be themselves. You actually encourage people to be themselves, to speak up, to be transparent. That's what you need. That shop was completely transparent. It was beautiful. And that's what builds great great companies or great teams or great sports teams, doesn't matter what it is, or makes great movies, doesn't matter, or anything. People need that feeling of uh, sense of purpose and trust, uh, openness, I think. It's funny, you talk much more in terms of culture than you do in terms of tactics and tricks and discounting and these kinds of oh things. It seems to start more yeah. with culture with you. Yeah, I think it's, it's, if you're trying to break down barriers and do things new, which I've now spent the last 20 years really taking on almost uh, uh, an extraordinary, wonderful challenge, which we will, we will win. We will get there. With Itsu? Yeah, um, it's uh, affordable, nutritious food. Uh, and Itsu's reinventing itself over and over and over again. I mean, it's 20 years old and it's had three reinventions. The, the latest ones are beginning to be, to really pay. I mean, they're really wonderful because the world, the Europe, are the cities in which we live desperately need affordable, nutritious food. We are half, 40%, I think, plant-based. Our entire menu is under 500 calories. Most of it's under 400. You know, this is what people need. We can't go on in, this, in the developed world being 50% obese or, or something, whatever it is now. It's shocking. But this is, we can't blame anyone for this. There's no point blaming, there's no point even blaming us. There's no one to blame. But it's about... My responsibility, I think, is with my team to, to carry on pioneering the, the systems and the, and the systems to make it possible to sell really nutritious, good food for, for seven quid. It's You're, possible. You talked about hiring and the importance of people and the right people there. One of the yeah. things that I read that you'd done very early on with 
Pratt was to allow the current employees to sign off on an incoming team member. So when yeah. someone comes for an interview, the people that decide if that person's going to get a job are the current team members. Yeah, so we the, the office used to pay for... for We'd interview people. Um, we'd go through the list of sh uh, of the shops which, the predominantly which needed people coming up, and we'd send them there, uh, and they would spend the whole day there, paid. And at four o'clock, no one would know. They wouldn't know this, but at four o'clock, all the the staff would vote on a napkin, yes or no. So they'd go around the whole team. They'd we'd, we'd find ways of, of of getting as many people to spend twenty five minutes with them as possible, and then at uh, four o'clock, they'd vote. And then we'd ring the person up. You got in or you didn't. And why Why was that useful? Because, uh, I wish I'd been able to do that at school, because I realised after about seven or eight preps that it was dysfunctional, that you only needed a slightly not particularly reliable or trustworthy manager. And what would they do? They'd hire the people they wanted. The whole system would just be abused. And there were a couple of examples where that was happening, and it just made me sick because it was so bad for the team. It was bad for the culture. It was bad for the manager and it was really bad for the customers. So uh, I, I just created this simple system, which was so beautiful. It was beautiful because young people were voting on other people's lives within a few weeks of starting. That was great. Empowering them, trusting them. That was great. Good for them, huh? Really good for them. Small details. You know, when I read through your story of, of both your businesses, all your businesses, I noticed that there's a real eye for detail. You know, yeah. if I think about Itsu and the orch orchards you have there, you have real orchards in the Itsus, right? Mm. Could very well fake them like I do. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's some fake orchards in here. There's definitely some fake orchards upstairs. Yeah. You went for the real ones. In Pret, one of the things that's ultimately defined the brand Caught, caught culture at the right time is the fact that the food is all completely fresh. Mm. So none of it has a sell-by date. Mm. It doesn't stay there till tomorrow, ever. These small sort of concerns with detail, how defining have they been for you in hindsight? Because sometimes people are told not to sweat the small stuff. Yeah. Okay, so quite a lot of this stuff is, to me at the time, is just kind of obvious. In other words, if your product, if you want, expect your customers to be loyal to you, you've got to treat them with treat them with respect you've got to sell them something worth worthy of their hard-earned money but people care about the bottom line you that costs you more money oh, no that's ridiculous i i'm not a very good accountant i i know i don't i'm not interested in in the numbers of the at all i'm far more interested in the relationships with the customer and the staff and the product the numbers are just look after themselves they really 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 do and anyway i've always been lucky to be to have wonderful, brilliant people around me who are much better than I at numbers. Same. I hate numbers. They're so boring. I shouldn't say that because without the numbers, you can't grow. So I feel very strongly that we have to have numbers which enable us to grow because if we can grow, we can feed more people and then we can uh, give opportunities. Uh, <laughs> Someone's to told people. you that after the fact. I can tell yeah. that's not, that wasn't your default position. No, it was a bit, exactly. But <laughs> I find the numbers awfully boring compared to the product and the relationships with the people. Um, they're just like a school report in a way, aren't they? Hmm. Um, if you want to give away and refuse to keep all your sandwiches to the next day and what's more, drive them in a van to the homeless people who need them, clearly they've got to be delicious, you know, got to taste good enough so that people will pay 50p more or 30p more. And that's just basic common sense, isn't it? I think the whole numbers thing's reasonable. It's just common sense. 
So you never even, you, at Pret, you didn't even throw the food away. You would drive it in a van. Yeah, to- we had to, even when we were making no profits, we had a van to take it to the homeless. Yeah, every, of course. Yeah, because you can't expect people to make this stuff, to make the food with pride and then throw it away. Yeah, we're obsessed about not, 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 not throwing it away. You can't, can't throw it away. Uh, and then if you take the piss out of your customers, you'll lose them. Don't you find it extraordinary how often you get shocking service where you've spent a lot of money and no one gives a damn? I mean, I'm not going to name big companies, but I can think of some companies where I've spent five or six thousand pounds on something and they don't answer. I mean, it can be shocking and they still don't care. Oh my God, I, I will answer every customer now, today. If customers write to me, I'll answer them before I go to bed. No question. At prep, the other thing that was quite I remember hearing about and thinking, oh, that's cool and different, is one in every hundred coffees or something you would no, give away to... No, it wasn't that. No, it was much more than that. It was like... Was it? Okay, so we didn't have a loyalty scheme for years and years and years because we, we couldn't quite know what to do and I couldn't... But what I realised is uh, very, very early on, I think in prep number 12 or something, we said, I know, like, what we'll do is we'll encourage everyone who works there to give whatever they want away to whoever they want to. Um... Uh, it was wonderful. We used to do these things called buddy days, where the whole office used to, I, everyone had a buddy shop, and um, and my buddy shop was Oxford. But we used to, you could give away five or six or ten products every single day to anyone, a regular customer, someone who had a long face, someone you fancied. It just didn't matter. Give because when you do good stuff, it always comes back. You get it back. You've got to think long term. And so this was a good example of where we begged everyone who worked for us, just be kind, give it away. They exceed the expectations of customers. They'll come back. And you know what? Shall I tell you the most extraordinary thing? Some of the most profitable shops, short term, short term, we found weren't giving anything away. So the manager was saying to us, no, 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 no giveaways, no giveaways. Because their margins, their profit margin was better. So we introduced a button on the till called the Joy of Pret. I didn't do this. Clive did this. He introduced a system whereby at the press of a button on the computer could tell us every single store which wasn't giving away enough. Because when you gave something away, you had to press, you register on the till as a giveaway. So we quickly found out all the, the managers who were being, who were running their businesses too tight. They were being a bit mean. They thought... They were doing a good job by delivering more profit. What, what, what they didn't realize is, no, no, to do a great job, you need to build a long-term relationship with your staff and your, your customers. So give them a coffee, give them a croissant, just do it. Do you have any evidence numerically to support that that worked? No, none, zero. And everyone used to come in, professionals and consultants, just say, this is ridiculous, what are you doing? Your loyalty scheme is a joke. And I just... What can you say? Just, no, fuck off. Fuck off. <laughs> it works great. <laughs> but, but you can't, it, you know, different, different. It works great, but you can't prove it. Can't, can't <laughs> That's prove the it. typical CEO thing. It's like yeah. trying to explain it to a CFO. It's just like, yeah. just believe. <laughs> just, just believe it, yeah. <laughs> the only reason we're sitting here now, you and I, is because multiple times we've just made decisions like this. Mm. Um, half the time we've had to pretend to people we work with and we know what we're talking about, when in mm. fact we have complete no idea. But if it feels right and you think long term, you do it. You just persuade them. You pretend you know. 
You justify it in hindsight. Yeah, of course. You find some study. Find some study or just say, look, let's try it. <laughs> and then, and then and they say, no. Stop. No, and then finally you say, we're going to try it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wonder sometimes about how, you know, in your story and in my story, um, how our traumas and how our experiences with authority or with our parents or with shitty corporate jobs we had ended up shaping the decisions we made in our businesses and defining us because that's why I reference naivety not knowing the correct answers and in some cases having a problem with rules and authority yeah. end mm. up creating a more modern culture that I think so yeah I'm sure I see it over and over I, again I bet founders. you all the crap we went through definitely helped us uh, break through and just just do things differently must do yeah when you yeah. know something doesn't work why not just try something else that's why founder-led businesses, even you know, you think about Steve Jobs' perspective on the world to yeah. remove that keyboard and yeah. to do those small decisions that they made. Maybe it was driven by ego, insecurity, or whatever, but it but for some reason it gives people courage of their yeah. convictions to create new things. Yeah, of course it in does. New ways. And also a never-ending pursuit for the, the better detail mm. to make something better. And it's endless. That's the thing about the food business. It is truly endless. Why did I read that you don't like ambitious managers in your business I, re I read that you like slow and beautiful growth very ambitious people are a pain in the ass often very ambitious people often not always but often a very short term and they're really hiding all their crap for their own personal their own personal gain which i understand they've got they've got their own goals they've got their own desires they've got their own dreams of their own house this car this house this school this whatever the hell it is but that can be incredibly destructive to someone like myself and my team and an organization, which I take a, like a 30-year view to everything I do. I really do, 30 years, which drives, must drive some people I work with up the wall. But I really like to think 30 years, 30 years, must be. And if you get, if you get someone who's very powerful in your business who's thinking three years, well, I mean, Look at that. Look, and that's the, that's quite common in commerce, as you know. So they can they can they can move mountains, and but but then the mountains crumble. Uh, that's boring. It's a waste of everyone's energy and passion and, and love and everything. In May two thousand and eighteen, you sold your final stake in Pret. Yeah. Why? Because um, I wasn't. Oh, I wasn't asked. Um, I had no choice. Uh, the, the, the new owners of Pret-a-Manger have nothing to do with me. I met them, I've met them once for five minutes. They, they probably think I'm an absolute idiot. They have no, I've never met them. I don't, they have no interest in working with me. That's their choice. It's completely, uh, you know, that, that is, um, that's their choice. That's, I hope it works for them. So you own the business with your co-founder and then... Oh, sold that's a long, yeah, it's a long story. Pret started in 86 and... Yeah. and I'm trying to understand. I bought a founder ownership. in who was who I who I met at uh, at college, um, who was much much cleverer than me, much more disciplined than me, uh, and I had this really strong vision of, of 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 wanting to do this. But I knew I was smart enough back then to know I needed someone who was respectful of numbers and discipline and the law. So I said to him, "Look, if you leave your job, I'll give you half this company," and he did. He was brave. He had a good job, and he left his job. Um, and I think probably in the end, after about 15 years, we, we'd become immensely successful, the two of us. And he wanted to retire. I think the pace, the, my endless, never-ending pushing on the vision of what this could be probably drove him mental. Um, but, 
but he 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 was smart he he retired he works a bit now but he kind of retired completely which i respect completely that was his choice did it suck at the time when sinclair told you that he was going to retire no 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 it was i rather admired him i could never do that i really admire people who who are able to take control of their life like that i can't are you I, being dragged what's that mean being dragged yeah so take control of their life like that so no no i genuinely i promise you i think people who are able to to take control and i'm, I'm gonna go walking in the in the bloody jungle for six months i have nothing but admiration for people who can do that so that's why i ask if you're being dragged because like we said earlier you're admiring something that you don't have yourself Yeah, i right? don't have it i don't have it i'm, I'm so too you, you don't have control of your life is the i, I do have control of my life because i definitely make the choice to do what i do and but I, you couldn't stop and i love it i really i'm happiest creating there's no question i'm completely in love with what i do i love it i really enjoy it that may sound weird but it's the truth i love it i don't want to be walking in the jungle i love doing what i'm doing every day i've just had a food meeting now it was fantastic we've cracked something we've been working on for a year we cracked it today it's, it's incredible and millions of people will eat this thing in a year from now and it's because of our relentless passion and hard work to get this thing right and today we i think we cracked it and that's wonderful and then earlier this morning, we cracked a bit of design, which was incredible. I, I really enjoy it. So I don't want to be in the jungle. He did. He wanted to retire, and I respect that. But it left me in the ship because I did, we didn't have any paperwork between us. And, and suddenly, uh, different kinds of people came into the business. And they were much more formal, and, and, and some of the joy went out of it. Did he sell his stake at that point? Uh, yeah, he sold a chunk of it. But it really changed. It became professional. Uh, and, then, and then private equity came in. I mean, we had a very good private equity company, a UK one, they were, they were fine. They were very honorable, decent people. But it was definitely, um, the business became more about becoming a very successful business than, than developing a very beautiful relationship with the customer and staff. And it was acquired by McDonald's? No, that's not true. No, what mm. happened is um, for a very short period of time, McDonald's owned a 30% of it. Because okay, I thought sense. McDonald's, or no, I didn't, at the time, the leader, the CEO of the business persuaded me that McDonald's would teach us the disciplines we didn't have about global expansion. And I, in the end, he, I kind of caved in. And I thought it was a pretty weird idea, but I caved in. But after, it was pretty obvious after a few months, it was a bad idea because you know, they didn't really understand our business. But I'll tell you what, there was a very, very powerful distinction between a pursuit of real beauty of a product and a relationship with your customers and your staff to running a business and, and generating sales. Striving at two different outcomes, right? Two completely different. A really clever person can do both. And we did do both. The, the business was then run by a friend of mine who I still work with now, who I have huge respect for, and he did a great job. But in the end, the business was then, of course, sold in 2000. When was it? 18. 18. Yeah. yeah. And will the business continue to thrive? I, I don't know. I hope so. I, I just honestly don't know, but they certainly don't want anything to do with me. Are you disappointed in the way the business is? is no, going? I'm not disappointed. But do you ever walk in there and go, because I know I did when I left my company, when yeah. I resigned, my company had gone public. And I remember walking, seeing things they're doing and seeing, seeing the office yeah. and hearing this story and thinking, oh, fuck, they've lost this. No, no, no. I think on the whole, for years, the relationship between the company and its members of staff has been wonderful. So I'm often inspired by that. And I've never, no, I never think that. I think, I don't, no, 
You never walked in and gone, oh, if, if I was still running this No, thing. I don't really. What I think, I sometimes go in and I think, wow, I wonder what, just think what that could be. And then I think, God, how complicated that would be to get it there. And thank God I'm not doing both because that's what I'm doing on a daily basis now with, with Itu. Because Itu will become, in five, 10 years from now, a really remarkable home for affordable, nutritious food. That's, its, that's what it will be. There's no question that's what it is becoming. It's hard to see that right now because it sells too much uh, raw fish. Uh, you know, 30% of our sales are a product which it used to be 90%. It, it, uh, it's now down to 50, I think, or something. But we're, we're changing and developing uh, all the time now, Far, getting faster and faster at, at the reinvention of the company. I couldn't quite figure out where the crossover happened between Itsu and Pret. Well, 97, the first Itsu opened. While you were still the owner I was of at Pret, Pret and, and we had a supplier, um, a wonderful, uh, the head of marketing at the Japanese center was a young Japanese woman. And she said to me, I said to her, why, day, why are you working for this terribly boring company? Why don't you open a, a Japanese restaurant, which is affordable? Because in those days, Japanese restaurants were really stuck up, mm -hmm. really expensive, really boring. And... And she said to me, okay, I'll leave my job if you help, if you pay for it. So I said, okay, I'll pay for it. You lose your, you, you leave your job. I promise you two weeks later, she rung me up and she said, I've left my job. Love that. And I said, what have you done? What <laughs> have you? So I suddenly found myself with this responsibility to open a restaurant. Um, so when we found a site and we opened the first Itsu, which was very different from what it is now, but it was a start. And from that start, we built 76 or something of, of them. And then about five years ago, we started developing it so it could become the future. But, but we had to open 76 and keep it private. It was a 100% private company. I never, ever again wanted to end up in a situation where I owned a minority where the business would take over. In other words, you will do this, you will do this, we will deliver these profits, and we don't care about your vision. So I was able to build it to such an extent with the team that we owned it, all and, of it. And now you have, what, 75 stores in total? For, yeah, for 74 and, uh, in the UK? we're opening in lots of interesting places. Really fascinating. Just now, in the next 12 months, we're opening. I think we open Bromley next week. But it's changing so much. What's the worst crisis you've ever had in your business? Well, I wasn't there. Uh, I'd left prep when the crisis happened, when the the, the um, sesame incident of that poor girl who had food allergies. I wasn't there then. That must have been very difficult for everyone then. And 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 the ups and downs, as you know, as you will have experienced sesame. in your business, there are ups and downs every week, every month. So you often think this is a this is. Funny enough, I think most of my job today is telling people not to worry. A lot of people I work with um, come to me and say, Look, "We're in terrible. This is." And I it's, no, it's not. It's going to be fine. This sesame incident yes. you're referring to is a, a young girl yeah. who had an allergic reaction to a sesame seed. A baguette. In, yeah. a, in, a, in a baguette. She, she had serious food allergies and she had bought without, her mother wasn't there and she bought a baguette and, and ate it, which was covered in sesame seeds. I mean, it was tragic. Really, really sad. And as a result of that, Natasha's law has changed uh, brought in far more labelling, food labelling in this country. It's called Natasha's Law? Yeah, after her. But it was very painful for her, her family and everyone at Pratt. It was awful. But the crisis, uh, they'll come thick and fast and we'll be fine.
we'll be fine. How can you be so sure? Because, because just stick to the truth. The truth is, you know, the truth is good in the sense that of all the things which could go catastrophically wrong, we kind of know about them uh, with regard to the dangers of being on our businesses. Uh, health and safety, for instance. We have a five-star record, the highest record in this country. Every single one is five-star, always. No one else has achieved that before. And that is because the head, the COO of our company has a fantastic relationship with their head of sales. It's awesome, unbelievable. Our head of uh, safety got up on stage last week and the entire 220 people just completely clapped. I mean, it says a lot because usually those people, you know. So there's culturally that says something. So health and safety in our industry is really, really a fear. Um, what else? All kinds of things. Did that incident with Natasha, she 15-year-old drops dead on a plane, yeah. from what I read, um, did it change you in any way? Did it make you think differently about... Because that's the, for me, that's the inconceivable. It almost reminds me of um, Bob Iger. I yeah, read Disney. Bob, yeah, Bob Iger's book about a four-year-old that was playing at Disney and a crocodile comes out of the Disney pond and eats him. No. Yeah, no. And, the, and Bob Iger, about to go up on stage in Asia, gets a message from his senior leadership team saying, a four-year-old at Disney has just been eaten by a crocodile. And, I mean, it had a pretty profound impact on him, to say the least. So, well, I, I he know. was the chief exec at the I time. Mean, I know that it was terribly hard for the, t the, the senior team at practice. Although they hadn't, I mean, they, everything they'd done was completely within the law. Uh, not that that, who cares about that? But it was. I mean, it was, you know, the the it was just a, a, a number of terrible things which which took place should never have happened. A really remarkable thing happened um, in your life at a certain age when you found out you had a daughter out of the blue. Yeah, I had a feeling you were going to ask about that. That went public, didn't it? Yes. Okay. So my yeah, that is absolutely true. And I work with uh, Celeste. Now she's on the board and she sits next to me two days a week uh, and it's incredible. I had at some point in my early life, a man walk in, he walked into my mum's my shop and he said that he was my uncle. Huh? Turns out he was. Yeah. I didn't know I had any uncles in this country. Turns yeah. out I did. But tell me about that day for you. What, how did it happen? How do you find out? How, what, what age are you when you find out you have a... Oh, it was about 15 years ago. And she was 26. So I was about 45. You were 45, she was 26. She was about, no, she was 19. Oh, 19. She had just started at Brust, Bristol University. And uh, her mother called me, who I hadn't seen for ages. Um, and obviously I had absolutely no idea that her daughter was my daughter. No, absolutely no. I'd never met her, I had no idea. And her mother asked to see me. So I said, yes, me and we met in, we met in the King's Road. And she told me, I sat down. I, Weren't you suspicious when she asked to see you? No, I wasn't suspicious. I certainly wasn't suspicious of that. I thought maybe she needed help or I, I don't know. Um, but she was a kind of cool, in, intelligent, rather wonderful, eccentric, brilliant woman. So I remembered her very fondly. I hadn't seen her for ages. But, so I met her immediately and she, and she just told me there and then, my daughter, I have a daughter and she's your, she's your daughter. So I asked her, well, when did you tell her and how's it gone down? And she said, I told her two weeks ago and not well. So then we, then I tried to contact her. She was a bit standoffish. It was hard to get through to her for a few days. And then I 
drove up to Bristol University and we met. We met. And I had nothing but but um, an overwhelming desire to, a deep overwhelming desire to get in there and, and try my hardest to build her muscle and her strength and her, you know, what, what had happened to her was incredibly unjust. And I wanted from the depth of my heart to do everything I could to try and repair it. And I will do that and continue to do that to the day I die. Um, she's fantastic and she's really close to my children and my other two and you know it could be much worse but I feel this is not an easy thing to go through for her not not an easy thing for anyone to go through so she's strong she has she's married she has two kids and a third one on the way and she's really rather remarkable so the person she thought was her father wasn't wasn't correct and why why hadn't her mother told her who her father because was? Because her mother, I don't, she wasn't. Uh, I did that when the, when this happened, uh, they they weren't close. The mother and the father, they weren't. They really weren't close. If you understand oh. what I'm saying, they really weren't that close. And he, the the father figure, was pretty distant through her life. And then when she got to the age of eighteen, I think probably more distant. And I think the mother realized that this couldn't go on forever. And she, the mother was very brave. She took this hugely brave decision. Do I tell her the truth or do I not? I have nothing but respect and absolute admiration for the mother having the courage to tell her daughter the truth. It must have been agony, agony all around. Um, but she did the right thing. What was it like arriving to Bristol University that day? Oh, what's it like when you, you find in, you know, when a, when a child's yours, I can assure you, you know immediately. You just know. So it was lovely. It was lovely. I was really, uh, funny enough, things like that you would have thought would be completely, totally um, crushing for someone who wasn't that well equipped to deal with that sort of shit. But actually, I found it one really, really, really enriching. And the way my two boys embraced her was incredible. It was really an opportunity to really shine and uh and do and it was great it's it's it's, it's you know i have nothing but admiration for the way she, she's handled it anyway she let's change the subject because she went like this <laughs> but you work together now which is awesome yeah yeah of course we do she yeah. she, she works in the marketing team she leads marketing no she she leads the brand and on she's the brand on the okay. board and she's been um, extremely helpful from day one she ran the marketing team for four years, actually. She was bloody good at it. But now she has three children or about to. Sounds like a really nice movie to me. <laughs> what are you scared of? Uh, what am I scared of? Uh, oh, my God. I'm scared of death. Really? I think. You did I'm, say you were scared I'm of I'm quite a hypochondriac. I'm scared of that. Uh, that's about it. Maybe that's, that's about it. Why does death scare you? No, I think just just the whole thing with health and not paying enough attention to your health and and you're, it's completely beyond one's control. I mean, totally. When that goes, you're in. When that when the, when you're in trouble, you're in trouble, and that can happen tomorrow. So that it doesn't really scare me. I don't ponder on it too much, but I think we're all hypos. Misha, my son's a hypo. My wife Brooke is not a hypo. She, I spent my life saying I'm dying. She she and then. <laughs> Trouble, I've cried wolf so many times. 
And then one of my stepdaughters is quite into medicine, so I refer my illnesses to her quite a lot. Um, <laughs> Are any of these illnesses real? So, no. So far, <laughs> we've had quite a lot of full... S- <laughs> We're not going to go there. But the fact is, yeah, I... W- I'm not even, I'm not even fear death. No, I don't fear, I don't think I fear anything, actually. I really don't. There's no time to fear. It's all time to hope. Hope and believe and hope and, and, and yeah. The, the, it's incredible what people can do. Not just, not me, but all the people around me. If I had a recipe here and it's the recipe of happiness, what are the ingredients on your recipe? Listen, I, 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 I I don't think about it. I really, really don't. I, I can think about that I'm not unhappy. I'm very, very privileged and I'm very lucky to be not unhappy. I have all the material things. I have food, warmth, love. I have everything. So the idea of me pondering on how I could be happier is kind of ridiculous. For me, the concept of thinking about how, how I could be happier is kind of, I mean, really? Haven't, haven't I got enough? I've got everything. I'm so lucky I'm not unhappy are you happy yeah whatever yeah i'm not unhappy um it's a different thing <laughs> there's unhappiness and there's happiness are you happy is a different i remember the day my i'm often happy Listen, often... i get up on monday and i can't wait to work to to race to work with so many people i uh, i admire love and trust um and i leave home surrounded by people who i love admire and trust christ what more could you possibly want than that I don't know. But it didn't come by accident. So I don't want, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just saying luck fell in my lap. That's going to be confusing for uh, anyone who's watching this. I got into this situation through um, doing a lot and working and acting on the evidence. In other words, when things don't work out, it's obvious, change it, work harder. If You know, it, it, same with your personal relationships. Well, this is all within our domain. We can all do this. What advice would you give to me in my, you've, you know, your career's spanned longer than mine. I'm older, I'm much older than you. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Well, I don't, I think you're on the right track. I mean, that is why you are, you stand out as being uh, this, you know, very, you've had a huge amount of success at a very young age. So if I was you, I'd just, just stick to what's working. Um, and the, your endless pursuit of transparency and truth, that is what's got you to where you are today. Actually. You're, you don't don't underestimate. Uh, I don't know how often anyone in your life congratulates you or pats you on the back, but I think you must carry on as you are with showing great empathy and and warmth. So even on uh, I've watched on Dragon's Den, it's mm. interesting that you I've noticed you never put anyone down. You somehow yeah. very human the way you deal with with everything. So your ability to work within the world of truth is. It's fabulous. So just don't lose it. Don't lose it. And don't forget, however much, the money's all crap. We have a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest asks a question to the next guest and they never know who they're asking it to. So in a nice way, all the guests are talking to each other and they write it in this book and I don't get to read it. If I, if I try and peek, Jack does... He actually he like shoes me off with the... Like hits me with the book. Okay. I thought about this last night. So I can easily do that. Well, you don't know what the question is. <laughs> oh, uh, God, you're going to ask me the question. Yes. Oh, Lord. Uh, I, but I've thought about my question. Okay, good. Okay. So let's, oh, no, I wonder who this was. Oh, okay. 
Interesting. You really don't know what it is. On my mother's life, okay. I, do, I do not look. And sometimes we have a problem because the handwriting can be an issue. But Jack always checks and I'll, I'll say what else happens. Jack will tell me if it's a shit question. So if we had one guy who was like, what's your favorite meal deal? So Jack told me before oh, I guess, for Steve. Sake. Yeah. <laughs> After this, so Jack was like, Steve, the question's shit. I was like, oh, fuck. But it only happens once in a while. You can keep that in. Jack, mate, you bastard. <laughs> Ruining my show. <laughs> He's my friend, so it's okay. And he actually knows. He watched the next episode and was like, you didn't ask the question. I'm the fuck Are off. we allowed to know who, are, who asked the question? You're no. not allowed to know. Okay. One day you'll be able to find out though, because we're going to release them all as, as Of course. Cards. Not, yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, the question that's left for you. What is an inadequacy you admit to that you could work on starting tomorrow honestly i mean where do you begin with something like that i mean it's a perfectly good question but the list is so long so the, the only way you can answer a question like that is, is is to choose um the biggest inadequacy and i i wouldn't know even know how to do that i think what i need to do and we all need to do is embrace all our inadequacies and and know what they are and accept them and 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 thrive knowing they're there that's what we need to do. Yeah, I'm not going to give you. A, I'm not going to answer that question by saying, "Oh, I could, I could, I could, I could kiss my wife goodnight," you know, or that I do that anyway. Um, or I could go to the gym more. I could the hundreds of things. I'm a very inadequate person. What about in your relationships then? Because you you reference kissing your well, wife. Well, my relationships. Uh, there's so much I could do better with all my relationships. I honestly don't Same. know where to start, but at least I'm aware of that. What are you aware of? I'm aware of the fact that uh, to create the way I do, to work the way I do, comes at a cost. And the cost is? And the cost is I don't spend enough time nurturing, loving, and being supportive to the people I love most. That's just a fact. Do I regret it? No. Do I accept it? Yes. Do they? I pray. And when I'm gone, and if, if we continue to build something remarkable, they'll know that we're all part of this together. This was made possible by, by them and, and, and myself together with the team. Have you ever had that feedback from them? No, uh, Being as loving? No, they've never, they've never actually outrightly criticised me for it, but I'm aware of it. I mean, I'd have to be an idiot. You know, you don't have children you're not married, you're in a relationship, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you, this is all stuff for you to face in the future. I get the feedback. That's why I asked the question. Do you? Yes, yeah. I did. I find out about most about myself from my girlfriend turning to me and saying, she's been with her for three years or yeah. something like that. Three years is not enough. Saying something to me and me going, what are you talking about? What? And then walking away and going, fuck, she's yeah. right. No, I, I, my, my, all the, my children, Misha, my son, uh, my eldest son works in the business and he is, fanatical and brilliant and works really hard. Billy, my younger son, is a very talented artist uh, and Celeste is, is there too. So those three are all, they understand exactly what it's like to be completely committed and, and work really, really, really hard. My four stepchildren, equally. The youngest one's just got into an incredible university. Uh, my eldest one, Ines, is, they're all very committed and my wife is just the same. I've never known a, a person with more energy, more determination, who's more supportive and generous and loving. So if I've let them all down, they've done a bloody good job of not telling me. When was the last time you cried? Oh, I cry in movies. 
all the time. Brooke says I cry at all the wrong things. Like I cry in movies, I cry in this and this, but I don't. She thinks it's weird. She thinks it's really weird to cry in, you know, the voice or something. I don't think it is. It makes me really moved. What about it makes you moved? Well, you know, when you see a, a young, terrified person come on and, and perform way beyond their expectations and do a remarkable job, particularly when they're young and they have no confidence, but they're just remarkable. Just, just people who dare, dare take a huge risk. Don't you, think, don't you find it it's just so incredible? the way people dare take a risk. It's what we all need to do. It's what everyone listening and watching needs to do more. Seek transparency, take a risk, say say it, do it. Just just go for it. If some, you know, and you can do more than you think and you can say more than you do. So do it. Julian, thank you. It's You're been welcome. absolutely fascinating, amazing, inspiring conversation. Your your personality is just so engaging mm. and you're thank you i feel like i'm getting the truth which is which is really really phenomenal when you as a speaker especially in the, the medium of a podcast the passion you have in everything you're saying is so captivating it really really, really is captivating and i can imagine I, I now i understand the business and it's funny that that now having met you and asked you these questions and sat here with you yeah. i understand the love and the passion and the attention to detail and the care for the people all of those th things come through so much and i also think i know where it comes from yeah and the, the the journey you've had that's led you to really prioritize treating people well yeah. um, and, and creating things that are for the long term. So Julian, thank you. Uh -huh.